and welcome to the One Link Podcast. I am Brad, and I'm joined by James in the beautiful One Link Studios. What's happening, James? Amen. Just sitting here admiring each of our different studio options. Yes, we all are happy to go today. So uh, we are going to introduce a new series. Uh, In our season two, we talked about working with Muslims. And so we're kind of switching gears from our mobilization uh, mini series here. And we're going to talk about working with Hindus. Yay. Yeah. And we have, I'm going to become less so that someone else can become more. And we're going to have Zach joining you, James, to help you with this one, because he is more knowledgeable in this area by far than me. So welcome, Zach. Hey, guys. Glad to be back. Zach is back. Zach is we back. brought you back. You passed your the Muslim stuff was kind of a little of a t- trial period. You aced it, so you're back and you're solidly one of our go to go to guys now. Yeah, thank you, thank you. This is your big opportunity. Glad yeah. it's here. I didn't blow it. <laughs> We're definitely excited to do another series on a different religion. You know, there's. Uh, some major world religions. Uh, we've covered Muslims, which in the last couple of years, we've had more teams go to them. But last year, we had more uh, second most teams was go to Hindus. And it wasn't as many by a good good distance. But we have, I think historically, we, we say we've, we've had more Hindu work than Muslim work, or has it been about the same, Brad? Uh, I don't know that I could give you exact stats, but I would say pretty close, if not maybe more, uh, a little more Muslim work. Okay. Well, good. Well, this will be a chance to jump into another world religion. And we're thinking about this in a couple of different contexts, listeners. Uh, One, you know, is for the student that's going. This isn't a PhD in what Hindus believe, but it it gets you jump started. Uh, Unless you've been interacting with international students, probably don't have a lot of opportunities to interact with Hinduism. Uh, We don't hear about it near as much on the news. It's not as big a thing. So we'll get them started with some stuff. Uh, It's also great for alumni and other people that are looking to interact with South Asians, and they are all over the place. And so a great way to know how to begin sharing, how to begin starting relationships with them. It's also a good opportunity for our volunteers. You know, every year we have tons of volunteers that come and and many of them play a different role in this country we create called focused on and so it's good for them to know more and more about different religions that their characters are playing so that's another area that we're always looking to grow in Uh, lastly and this includes like everybody because there's some people that you know like my mom listens to this and not because she's been on a one link trip or because she plans to go on one but she listens because she has an awesome host on here um (laughs) So it's, it's churches and people that pray for the nations. Like if you're praying for the nations, it makes so much more sense to have a knowledgeable prayer. Uh, the more we know about what people believe, the better we can pray, the better we can join together with God and asking for that. Uh, and then lastly, churches and peoples that are senders. Um, as senders, if we have some idea of what our people on the field are, are competing against, again, we're able to pray better, we're able to support them better, we're able to mobilize for them better. These are all areas that we hope this series will help in. Uh, Zach, why don't you jump in? You got way more experience than all of us, even though you have you actually have more Muslim than you have Hindu, but but give us some of the demographics, geographics of Hinduism. Yeah, well, let me first start off to say I, I definitely am not 
an expert in this, and I do have some exposure from our last term on the field in South Asia, but uh, definitely we were focused on working with Muslim peoples. So yeah, in South Asia, obviously this includes India, uh, Nepal, and some of these other countries that are majority Hindu. And these are some of the only countries in the world that really have are really majority populations that believe in this religion. So since more of our teams are starting to go to South Asia, more are interacting with Hindus, although we have had some in the past. So I'm trying to encourage us to sort of take on this aspect as well, though I, I myself am not an expert. Uh, India, of course, is a mix uh, because of their partition from Back in the, the 40s with the independence after the British uh, Raj, they kind of broke free. Well, so since they broke free, they started governing themselves. And there was some debate over whether they wanted to be a Hindu nation or one that incorporated all religions. And Mahatma Gandhi was one who really encouraged that India not just be an Indian or a Hindu nation, but actually be one that could accommodate both Hindus and Muslims. Um, the Muslims, however, since they were a minority, demanded their own countries. So at that partition time, the British broke it off into Pakistan and India. And while India was majority Hindu, there are still many Muslims and still many Buddhists that live there as well. Of course, Buddhism came after as a break off of Hinduism, but its uh, roots are in India. And so uh, the Buddha uh, was born and became enlightened in India. And his teachings spread from there. Now the majority Buddhist countries are in East Asia, which is interesting. But still, Buddhism is a very prevalent influence in India. So South Asia is really the center for Hinduism. Nepal is really the only country that considers itself a Hindu nation. And, and so uh, this is a good podcast for, for knowing that there are many South Asians on our international or international students on our campuses. And if they're from South Asia, there's a high percentage. They're either Indians that are Hindus or Nepalis, and most likely they're Hindus as well. Excellent. What about in terms when we look at like one of the maps that has unreached people groups on it or, you know, least access, those kind of things, where does this, how does this area of the world break up? Yeah, the interesting thing uh, is that though India is mainly Hindu influenced all around, there are in many ways, broken up into many different languages, and you might say tribal groups. And many of those tribal groups are very fiercely loyal to their local language and local culture, even though they are within the realm of India. Many say that Hindi is the national language, but rarely do you find any native Hindi speakers because they all have their local languages, especially in the southern parts of India. So they're fiercely loyal to their own private tribes, you might say, and local languages. So this makes part of the reason why there are so many unreached people groups in this part of the world is because they are broken off into languages, a huge part of that language and culture. And mm -hmm. so some of that has to do with caste, but a lot of it has to do with just the different languages that are uh, in India. There are, I don't know how many, but so many that it's, it's hard to even fathom and dialects as well. And are these languages related to each other at all? Like I know in East Asia, they have a bunch of like little local dialects, uh, but they 
most of them have some kinship with another. Yeah, I think many of them would say they are from the Sanskrit base, but I think there's enough difference. And, uh, you know, again, it's not something uh, I could say definitively, but many would say, no, there's there's just so many different differences in them. They cannot simply be called dialects or, you know, just regional change, you know, regional changes in language. But I think most of them would say they go back to the holy language of the Sanskrit from that region. Okay. Very interesting. What about, so what were some of your experiences like over there? What did you see when, like when y'all were on your second term or last term? What were kind of your experiences dealing with Hindus? What would you see some of the teams that came over and worked with you guys? What were their experiences like? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things, I think, between a Muslim type of a a culture environment and a Hindu type environment is the idols. The idols that are everywhere that, that are worshipped, their offerings of food and drink and other types of things, even animals to sacrifice to these idols. And there's just a sense of that the spiritual uh, warfare uh, of those places is really in your face. Muslim areas tend to be a little bit cleaner. They don't allow for idols. They don't allow for any images of any kind to be worshipped. So oftentimes the mosques are often kept quite clean. The Islamic culture tends to have cleanliness aspect that's very important for them, washing before they pray and things of that nature. So generally speaking, Muslim cultures tend to sort of have a cleaner look, you might just you might say, and uh, and that's a part of why Hindu Hindu areas, many Westerners are just kind of like, whoa, to see these idols that are very scary looking, very colorful. The more colorful, the better. Mm. Of course, each one of these idols has a long history of legend and myth that goes along with those stories that Mm -hmm. most people outside of the Hindu faith don't have any idea about. So, Do you have any idea, this is a little side topic, but do you have any idea why the idols usually look so scary? Like what's the... Well, it's a good question. I think one of the challenges with Hinduism is when you ask people some of these questions about the stories behind the idols, even stories about where their faith came from, there's a lot of, you might say, unknowns or differences, uh, stories that people will share. I always talk to uh, students who come and work with Hindus and say, it's not easy to just give you a uh, easy, simple description of what Hinduism is and, and how to share with them, because depending on the, the Hindu you meet, you might get different answers for the same question. So it's often difficult to uh, to kind of have something in mind of where to start and where to go with a gospel presentation, because some don't know hardly anything. Uh, if you ask the same, if you ask 10 Hindus about Krishna, uh, you know, you might get 10 different types of answers, maybe not absolutely different, but nuanced or, you know, stories that you think, wow, that's that's different from what I've heard others say. So it can be difficult. I always say trying to understand Hinduism is like nailing jello to the wall because it's really hard for you to get any kind of solid outline of what things are. And the worldview is so different from our rational Western viewpoint that a lot of Westerners just find it very confusing. Yeah. I've heard that there's like 300 million gods or some. Yes. Yeah. And 
That's true. I think that pure Hinduism would say there's only one force, there's only one divine force, but the manifestation of uh, those things in, in the form of 300 million or whatever is sort of, you know, similar to the idolatry that they want to offer something to to get something in return, and they need to have something tangible by which to do so. Of mm. course, some of the scary aspect of the idols has to do with the legends and the stories that go along with them. But a lot of it is about spiritual warfare, of fighting off evil, scaring away the evil eye, those types of things. So while they look terrifying and demonic to us, for many Hindus, it's all they've you know, known all their life. And it's not so much scary to them as as just, yeah, that's that's uh <laughs> That's Shiva right there, you know, or or whatever. So you're thinking, whoa, that's that's crazy. So mm-hmm. for sure. What about like what are some of the challenges when you when you work with Hindus? Besides the fact, like you just said, it's hard to nail Jello to a wall. Yeah, one of the things that is difficult is they're very, you might say, pluralistic, very tolerant of many other religions. So it's very difficult to sort of get into a discussion over truth. It's Mm. difficult to get into a discussion over what scripture is truth, whether Jesus is the truth, especially whether Jesus is the only way. Mm -hmm. Because of their concept of religion, there in their minds are many ways to God. And uh, that's why they have so many gods. That's why there's so many idols. There are many ways. And you pick one and you give devotion to that one. And that is sufficient to connect with uh, the deity. But to Mm -hmm. say that one is right and one is wrong is really not in their concept. So oftentimes the biggest challenge you'll find is when you're saying Jesus is the only way and all other ways have to be discarded. That's when they get the most um, irritated and frustrated because that would be really against what they would believe as far as their religion goes. Mm -hmm. But I've heard like in terms of like, if you're not careful, they'd be happy to pray a prayer to Jesus, just like they would any other, you know, 300 million yeah. and one is not yeah. any problem for them. No, that's that's true. If you were just to share about Jesus's life and what he did and the miraculous powers and the healings and the things that he had done to raise the dead, they would be very interested and would even say, yes, I, I would be happy to worship him and, and even accept him as my savior. Of course, they have a they'd be confused about what you might mean by that. And they certainly, it would be difficult for them to say that they're going to discard other all other forms of worship that they're participating in, but simply adding to it, adding Jesus to their gods, you might say. Because in many ways, especially at the lower level of Hinduism, it's very practical. I will do what uh, is necessary to, to get what I need for health or, or for prosperity, for my family or and so if i pray to jesus and he gives me that then i'm happy to to add him to the options available james can i jump in for a sec here yes sir i just want to make sure our audience doesn't think i'm off drinking coffee i'm here i'm engaged (laughs) no Uh, no zach i know we talked a lot in recent days for those who are familiar with our training we have these religious themed days we have a muslim day and a hindu day and I've been talking about some of the contextualization issues that come up when you're working with Hindus. So we talked about that with Muslims. What are those conundrums? You know, if the Muslim side is, can you say Allah or 
can you pray in a certain way or you know so on and so forth what are the the challenges contextualization wise for hindus or working with hindus i should say well yeah i think that's a it's a good question it's a hard question i think some of the challenges are just like they are willing to participate in worship to Jesus, they would sort of expect that you would be happy to participate in worship to their gods and uh, would wonder why you are, you know, refraining something that might help you, like that might be useful to you, <laughs> because again, it's it's very practical for them. So sometimes whether to participate in some of their religious practices is a challenge. And part of it is because Generally speaking, for Hindus, everything has a spiritual purpose or a spiritual background to it, because in their minds, God is everywhere. God is in everything. He's this sort of impersonal force. Uh, even he's within us in the sense that humans are to some level divine. And so that a lot of it goes back to their original ideas of uh, who God is and and who man is and how do we relate to one another. So I think the contextual aspects of participating in cultural activities can be a challenge because sometimes we don't understand the meaning behind them. We don't understand whether it's just simply cultural or whether there's some worship of a deity behind it. And of course, as Christians, you know, we're, we are encouraged to worship Jesus alone and worship uh, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alone. And and not to offer worship to any idols. So those are some things that uh, sometimes, you know, they're very much inviting and wanting us to participate, but we'd have to explore a little more about what it is they're asking us to participate in before we jump in just to participate as maybe a friend or as a fun activity. That's all I had, James. Back to you. <laughs> no further <laughs> questions, Your Honor. No further questions. So just a real quick dumb question, but they believe in reincarnation as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple basics that I think uh, e even the West has become very infatuated with some of these concepts. One of them is sort of the idea of the cycle of life, death, and reincarnation. And, of course, you know, the scriptures are clear that a man is destined to, to die once and after that to face judgment from Hebrews. But the idea of a second chance at life, <laughs> to come back as a as a uh, to get another chance or even an endless number of chances at life uh, can be appealing for a lot of people. I mean, I don't know if you've heard this concept of, oh, he's an old soul. You know, the idea that, well, he's been around a few times or or I really identify with someone in history. Maybe, you know, I'm a reincarnation of their, you know, soul or spirit or something of that nature. So that's one thing. The other thing that is pretty kind of the West is gets infatuated with this idea of cause and effect, which uh, we, we know is karma. The idea that, you know, uh, if you do well, good will come back to you. And if you do evil, evil will come back to you. And there's some level of Christian concept where, where we agree that, you know, there will be judgment for sin, right? And mm -hmm. there will be reward for good works. But this idea of cause and effect that is essentially a works-based system. You do good in order to get good. And you don't do bad in order to not get bad. And some of it means uh, your next lifetime, right? So if you do good, you will advance in this progress towards uh, a better you know, life the next, next time around. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the Hindus believe that the ultimate release from this cycle of life is to be released from this wheel and to join the divine 
to be engulfed and to be encompassed so that you cease to exist as a person and you become part of the divine, you know, out there. And you, that's sort of what in their minds is salvation, which they say moksha. Mm -hmm. And so, so some of these terms may be have heard and, but we have a Western spin on some of them because mm -hmm. uh, it sounds kind of cool to us in some ways. So I think the other thing is that I mentioned before the idea that somehow humans themselves are divine to some level. We have a divine spark in us or, or that since God is, it's kind of a pantheistic view that God is, is all things and in all things, then, then we also have divine in us. We just need to find it. We need to, to seek it out and we need to um, allow it to get loose, so to speak, and, and let, uh, let us be enlightened and realize that that's who we truly are. So, mm -hmm. And isn't that their basic greeting, namaste? Isn't that basically like, I see the spirit of God in you or something like that, or spirit of the divine in you, maybe? Right, yeah. I, I recognize the divine in you is, is what I've understood that to mean, uh, namaste. Yeah, I recognize the divine in you. In other words, I honor that you are, uh, you know, have the divine in you. So I, I give you respect. So mm. what okay. about Zach that, you know, you're, I'm hearing some things that I wonder have some, some of this infatuation with Eastern religion in them. So you'll hear people like vibes. Everyone's talking about vibes right now. <laughs> I don't know where this came from, but you know, like, yeah, I'm sending you some good vibes, you know, or uh, do you think this is sort of all related to what you're talking about this uh, curiosity and interest in Eastern thinking, or maybe you know, influence on us. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure about that concept in particular, but I do think that it, there is some Eastern ideas about of this force of good, right? That we can influence others with, and I think in in the Buddhist, you might call it the chi or something of that nature. That this this force that flows, and we, you know, we need to. Uh, you know, we need to get into the flow, right, of, of what's happening and 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 let it take us along. I'm not sure about the concept of the vibe itself, but uh, certainly if it, it comes from California, I think that slang comes from California. So it would make a lot of sense that there would be some affinity to Eastern religion and Eastern concepts in there. But I can't say for sure. So sorry. <laughs> what about, here's the other dumb question I have. Like if you'd asked me growing up, what I knew about Hinduism, the only thing I would have known, true or not true, is that they don't eat cows because they think it's your grandma or something like that, or your uncle. <laughs> yeah. Flesh, flesh that out a little for me. Well, you know, I've heard a couple different things about that. One is that, you know, this cow represents the Brahma, the one original God. But then others have said, no, Brahman and Brahma is different, that the worship or the respect for God uh, for the cow is really more of a respect for nature that provides us the food we need as a cow gives milk. There's a really strong connection uh, in Hinduism between a cow's production of milk and their gods like Krishna feeding off of the milk or that the milk is the production of the earth for the need things that we need. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. it, it, it's a little more maybe in some ways related to what the West might say, Mother Nature providing mm -hmm. what we need for sustenance. And of course, the milk, not the meat of the cow, is, is what really provides the nourishment we need is the idea. So I've heard a couple different things. I think in the West, we often assume that they worship the God 
uh, the the cow is a god. But but then I've heard I've read some others that said no, it's not so much that as it is sort of a respect that uh, God provides what we need through nature, and that's represented in the cow. And so, anyways, it's a good question. I'm not sure I can conclusively say. We should have a Hindu on to comment on that. Zach, one of the things uh, we, in our Muslim mini series that we talked about is. You know, sometimes we have all these, we now we learn all these facts about Islam. And so then you go and kind of talk to your Muslim friend and they may not know about that or they may not, you know, they're, they're maybe just culturally Muslim. Is that in Hindu context, how much are people just sort of culturally Hindu and they're not, you know, they don't know all the ins and outs versus is it kind of the same deal with the, the Muslim context? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And perhaps even more so because... Islam at its source is an exclusive religion, and therefore it is based on a, a holy scripture and a holy prophet who related the revelation of God. But, you know, Hinduism is so much more intertwined with Indian culture that it's it's impossible to separate. And many people who culturally honor the festivals, and they, they even offer worship and those types of things, but maybe if they're educated uh, or lived in the West, they would probably imply that they're, those things are more of our, our cultural heritage, you might say. And our, our mom and dad believe them, but maybe we're, yeah, that we understand those are sort of superstitions and things. And I think the average Hindu is not going to be highly educated on their, their theology, their doctrine, because there's not a lot of people who study those things except the higher level castes of the priests. And uh, so those types of things really are specialized only for that higher caste. And the most people, even some of the lower castes are not even expected to, you know, they're not really given the opportunity to learn or they feel it's not important because it's not their place in, in society, so to speak. So there's absolutely that, if not more so in Hinduism than in Islam about those things. So there's no question about that. What do we see God doing among Hindus right now? Yeah, well, I can relate from my experience and some of the things I've read. Certainly, because of uh, the British uh, presence in India for so long, for many years, which of course has the negative aspects of colonialism, but it also means that there's been a lot of Christian influence and work, uh, whether it's through Catholics or Protestants, uh, through William Carey or others. So there's been a lot of presence of the church in India. And because of its sort of pluralistic nature, traditionally it's been not a place that you had to worry about a whole lot of persecution. I mean, there's always persecution in some places, but because of the pluralistic nature, you know, Christianity was, you know, for many years, not really seen as a, a major threat. It's only really, I mean, I guess I can't say this as an expert, but it's my opinion that it seems like this the influence of more conservative Hinduism is is becoming stronger, you know, in the last you know fifteen hundred years or so. So the the influence of the church has been there for a while. So that means that there are some old established churches there that go back to you know two hundred years, three hundred years if it's Catholic, and the Catholic Church has had a strong presence in there, especially from the area where I served, where Mother Teresa had a powerful influence and served the low caste and the and the infirm and the terminally ill just out of the love of Christ. So 
Uh, I think that what God is doing now, it seems to me, is that there's always been fruit in, in Hindu background peoples because of their practical nature of religion. Um, if if Jesus offers them something that they can't get from their gods, then that is powerful for them. Now, whether that's the best motivation for becoming a Christian or not, of course, we would say it's got to be more than that. But, you know, that's why I think that many Muslim, or many Hindus, excuse me, as I've talked to in my region, when I asked how they came to know Christ uh, as they were converted, it almost always had to do with a healing or a miracle that they experienced or or in their family, someone was sick and a Christian prayed for their, their sick relative and they were healed. And that led them to seek out Christ or even to follow Christ at that moment. And then, of course, not knowing anything about him. But I do think that as I've seen and read some materials, the church is growing. Uh, the church is really growing in Nepal, is my understanding. A lot of good Protestant work, particularly going on, evangelical work in Nepal and in India. Um, there are some strong Christian denominations in, in India as well. And my experience being in Bangladesh as well was that the church was much further developed in India than in Bangladesh. Okay. Zach, you, you hear a lot about northern India in particular, that there's, and the, you know, I think statistically the in southern India, there's a larger percentage of Christians. Why is that? Is that kind of big history lesson or nothing too complicated? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I know if I can answer that definitively. I know that the Muslims are mainly in the northern belt of India. So there's a hot, much higher percentage of Muslims and Sikhs in the northern belt uh, of India, which I think has something to do with it. I think the other thing is, is that the higher uh, economic class uh, was based out of Delhi and those types of places so that there was poor, lower caste people that tended to believe and, and to convert to Christianity. As I've recognized and I've heard many say that the low castes are the ones that are often converting uh, because they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And the higher castes and higher economic classes are much tougher to reach, who are more steeped in true Hinduism. And obviously, uh, as they're in the higher castes, they're on the, you know, they're, they're doing well, there's no need. And, and in many ways, there's an expectation that they will carry on the religion, especially for the Brahmin class. So I think that Generally speaking, I would say that has something to do with it, that there's more Muslims and Sikhs and higher, middle, higher class folks up in the northern belts, but uh, it's probably much more complicated than that. That's, that's interesting. At some point, I, I think this may come out in an interview coming up talking about the caste system. That, I think for a lot of Americans, that's confusing, but that might be, uh, I think we're probably heading, heading towards wrap up time here, James. So I don't want to throw that in there if, if we're not ready for it. Uh, I, I think, Zach, if you want to tackle that real quickly, if you want to solve all confusion about caste <laughs> in just a few minutes. But if you want to give a quick stab, I think we can do that and then wrap it up. Well, I think that the most destructive aspect of caste is that everything is fatalistically determined for you in your lifetime. And although there is the concept of karma and you can work your way to to be a progress, progress to the next one, there's awful lot of prejudice that comes with whatever caste you're in towards other castes, right? And especially if you're in a high-class 
you almost feel justified to be prejudiced against other castes and to treat them as lower caste has not as much value. There's not this concept of equal value of all humans. So I think that's the most destructive part. And as I read some biographies and some uh, material about the early missionaries in this area, they just felt like this concept of caste was the most evil and destructive thing that they had ever experienced because it just treated some people like dirt for no other reason that they were born into what is perceived to be this man-made. Of course, for them, it's not man-made. They believe it is God-ordained. But And that's part of the issue is the higher class are God-ordained to be rulers, and they're God-ordained to be businessmen, and they're God-ordained to be servants, and they're God-ordained to be uh, outcasts. You know, So there's no hope for those of a lower caste to to have any meaning or purpose in life, but simply to live the best you can in hopes that your next life will be better. And that it just really um, creates a lot of prejudice and, and divisions. It justifies a hatred for different people for no other reason. And racism is, is a big part of that too. If, if we're not just talking about the color of the skin, but the race of people uh, are seen as low value or no value which is just so evil and destructive. Well, I hope we can flesh that out some more because I I definitely, it has lots of confusion and lots of questions in my mind. We are super excited about this. Next up, we're going to have an interview with one of your friends uh, who is a, a professor at a Christian college now that did a lot of work with Hindus. And yes. uh, mm-hmm. I'm really, really looking forward to that that coming out. We'll have one on just sharing with Hindus and then another with like once one comes to Christ, what are some of the unique challenges of discipling them? Uh, so we're we're super excited about that. Brad, we'll have fun on here without you, but you can you can always <laughs> jump in if you want to come ask some fun questions. Listeners, we really appreciate you guys. If you are enjoying this podcast or if you know somebody that you think would be interested in this topic, be sure and share our podcast with them. We would appreciate that. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Look forward to it. Bye-bye.